Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. All right, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. This week, I caught up with Dr. Francis Bennett, a researcher from the Australian National University who works on lasers, adaptive optics, and quantum electronics, and is currently based out of Mount Stromlo. Our conversation ranges from space situational awareness to how to make your own chocolate to photon entanglement and encryption. Make yourself a cup of tea and settle in for a good chat. And as always, any opinions expressed by Francis or myself in this podcast are our own and do not represent the views of any organisations with which we are associated. We launch straight into this podcast as Francis explains to us in his own words what he does. So... What I do is build instruments for optical telescopes. And we've been taking techniques that have been used in astronomy for decades and applying them to new areas. So one of those areas is space situational awareness. So for people who haven't heard of SSA before, what is space situational awareness? So it's a combination of different, I guess, techniques and measurements that you make of the space environment. Mm -hmm. So that's anything in orbit, Uh, usually we talk about space situational awareness to do with man-made objects, so space debris, space junk, and the problems that causes. But it can go as far as atmospheric physics, learning about the solar wind interaction with the atmosphere and how that impacts on the ground as well. It can do to do with how satellites move around in their orbits, and that's important for geodesy, that's important for people not losing their satellites and also making sure that they don't run into each other. When I first met you, we were up a mountain, the Italian side of Mont Blanc, and you were riding a mountain bike down from the top of one of these peaks. Tell me about your experience. So there we were in the lovely Italian Alps, and I decided to hire a bike from the hotel. And so I took that around some of the the peaks that were there. I probably should have followed the advice of the hotelier and not gone up the trails I had told him about because they were indeed too rough. (laughs) Normally, I'm not not too phased by going over rough rocks and anything like that, but, you know, Mm. I've hired a bike, so it's not mine. There were hikers there. It is quite a bit steeper than what we have here at Mount Stromlo, um, and it's not groomed like anything else you would have in Australia, like at Threadbow or something where you have nice groomed runs. Mm. Uh, specifically made for bikes. These were sort of hiking tracks that you can sort of roll down on a bike. So there was a lot of walking involved, a lot of people walking up the other opposite direction saying you're crazy, and yet a lot of dragging a very heavy 
e-bike over snow drifts. I'm not sure this was a good idea. Definitely not. But you did survive. And there were some fabulous photos you showed me from the top. Absolutely beautiful. We were there for an Antarctic Astronomy and Astrophysics Conference, part of the Scientific Committee for Antarctic Research. And for some reason, they picked a location that was basically a lair. It was exactly like the place in James Bond on Her Majesty's Secret Service. You basically could only get to the conference location by cable car going up this mountain. And the cable car was used to film Kingsman. And then there's a kind of a chalet, I guess, on the side of the, the mountain, all glass and metal and wood with the most stunning view down the valley. Is this normal to have these sorts of conferences in wild locations? Definitely wild, exotic and nice to go to. Because why not? You do have to work to attract people to these things because Mm. people are busy. And so while they think, oh, you know, maybe I'll just send a student or something, you go to a nice place like that, suddenly all the higher-ups attend Mm. and pay attention to the conference, and that's sometimes what you need. So what can you do? Let's say that I have a satellite and it's in orbit doing something awesome and you identify through your telescopes and so on that there's something heading my way. Are we we at a stage where we can avoid collisions? So you can only really avoid it if you have some way of manoeuvring your satellite. So Mm -hmm. you'd have to move it out of the way. The instruments that we are building uh, here at Mount Stromlo are all to do with tracking objects and tracking them more accurately and more often. So we've partnered with EOS Space Systems and CERC, which is a CRC. And the main goals of the research programs that we're involved in are to be able to more accurately predict where these objects are going to be in the future. Mm. So the the problem is that you don't know exactly what's up there, even though uh, individual countries may have records uh, about what's been launched. You don't know exactly what state it's in and you can't always get the information. So there's a lot of active satellites, there's a lot of debris, Mm. there's a lot of rocket bodies. And it's important that you know where they are and where they're going to be so you can try and avoid collisions. Because when there's a collision, you just end up making more pieces of debris and that makes the problem worse. The relative velocities are just so large that even a small piece of debris can have a huge impact. There are a lot of alerts which do go out. Most of the time, people ignore them. The error on the measurements that are made for uh, objects in orbit and the predictions of where they will be are relatively large. And so most of the time, there's a lot of space in between things. Everything's okay, but every now and then, things do collide. So there was a famous one, um, I think it was in 2009, there was an Iridium and a Cosmos satellite which collided. Iridium had the alert that they were going to come close to this defunct Russian satellite, uh, but They get a lot of those alerts every week and they did nothing as usual, but this resulted in a collision. So I guess what we're trying to do with our partners is to try and reduce the error. And you do that by tracking objects more often Mm. and by having more detailed information. So for example, if you can actually resolve what the satellite looks like and what orientation it's in, you can start to think about how's the drag actually going to affect this satellite because it's in a particular orientation. Okay, so more predictive then rather than reactive. Yeah, you need to predict in the future because it takes time to to manoeuvre a satellite. Yeah, and just on a simplistic, very simplistic view, I imagine that 
Mount Stromlo is great. It's very dark. You can see a lot from here at night. But if you're trying to track something, can you track during the day? How does it work? Uh, it depends what kind of tracking you're using. So okay. there's a few different levels. There's the radar tracking, which is used all the time. That has a very large field of view, but relatively low accuracy. Mm. Then there's something called satellite laser ranging, and that has extremely high accuracy. That'll work through the day, um, but not through thick clouds. So it has to have good weather. So Mount Stromlo is quite good there because we have a lot of clear days and clear nights. And that's extremely accurate. So you can find the, the position of a satellite to within millimetres. So that one's really accurate. But the satellite has to cooperate. You have to have a retro reflector on the satellite to be able to actually um, have enough return signal that you can see that. Then you can have debris laser ranging where you do the same thing with a much higher power laser. And then you don't have to have a cooperative target. You can just have any sort of piece of space debris in orbit and you can track that. Mm. And you get quite good accuracy off that sort of within meters. But that you need to be able to see the actual object because the return is so small. Mm. And so then you can only do it during Terminator. So that's during sun, uh, around dusk and dawn. So there's a period of time where it's dark on the ground, but the objects above you are still illuminated because the sun is just going over the, the Earth's horizon. So that's called the Terminator period. And then you can do, I guess, just basic visual ob observations, and those need to be sunlit as well. So mm. it depends on the altitude of the objects and where you are on the Earth. How long have we been doing this sort of thing? So I think it's been around for a couple of decades now. I don't know when satellite laser ranging started, but certainly even the first objects in space were tracked with radar. Mm -hmm. But I would say since probably the, the 80s and 90s, the, the number of objects has grown so sharply mm. that the amount of tracking has had to increase to follow that. And I guess there's more skin in the game for a lot of different bodies as well, because historically governments would have launched satellites or had activities going on, and that's relatively easy to cooperate and track things and try not to run into each other. But with commercial, uh, commercial launch companies and satellite companies putting increasingly small payloads into orbit that are harder to track, perhaps like a CubeSat, things get more crowded and... I suppose there's a commercial interest then, as well as a more strategic interest or even a military interest that we might have seen in the past. Does yeah. that ring true for you? Definitely. So there are, there are certainly some very high value orbits. So everyone wants to go sort of to the same place. So you want to go to an orbit which is relatively cheap to get to, mm. but still does what you need. And most of the time, if you have something take an image of the Earth, Earth observation, um, or weather satellite or something, they maybe they want to go to a geosynchronous orbit, but that's a very particular altitude, and so there's only a limited number of slots there. Mm -hmm. And in low Earth orbit, if you have an Earth observation thing that you want to pass over the same point on the Earth every day at the same solar time, so you get good illumination from the sun, that's called a sun-synchronous orbit, and they're, again, at very particular altitudes. So these altitudes become very heavily populated this is where most of the danger is so there's a lot of polar sun synchronous orbits which are very uh, highly populated mm. and there's a lot of competition to actually be able to get there so this is where all the commercial interest is yeah it's the cheapest orbit to get to which still has the the uh, most effective coverage of the earth how did you get interested in ssa what made you come and work in this field well, I did a PhD in nonlinear optics, actually. So sort of the 
almost the exact opposite to what I'm doing where you have very high power lasers all focused into very small structures. Now I have uh, extremely low power light coming from stars mm. with massive optics on the biggest telescopes in the world coming into huge instruments. Okay. And so yeah, as I was finishing my PhD, I, this job opportunity came up to work on the Giant Magellan Telescope and an SSA project. And so I took that and was able to get a lot of experience in astronomical instrumentation and adaptive optics and mm. to do to build these instruments for these new areas using the same techniques which are used in astronomy. What, what led you to do a PhD in, was it nonlinear optics? Uh, so I sort of ended up there after my undergraduate uh, degree. I ended up doing a, a, a small project for my honours in the same area yep. and just enjoyed the group and uh, I guess the, the lab work that was there. So it was a really good environment where I got to do a bit of lab work and a bit of uh, theory as well. Mm-hmm. And that sort of suited me quite well. Were you a sciencey kid? Yeah, definitely. My mum always, she was the one volunteering at our school to come in with bits of bone from the butcher telling us about how animals went together and what <laughs> joints did and all this sort of stuff. She was a, a biochemist, so okay. we would spend the school holidays in her lab moving water around with pipettes and things like that and spinning beakers in different bits of equipment and just having fun. Yeah, so you sort yeah. of grew up in a lab. Definitely. I think there's a lot of scientific interest, I guess, in myself personally. And I think I like to build things. I like to make things. So this area itself allowed me to do that. So by building instruments, I, there's a lot of creativity that goes into that. And hmm. I work, while I work with engineers who maybe uh, design the fine detail of it, there's a lot of work that I still put into Uh, building these instruments and actually putting them together with my hands and deploying them. Tell me about adaptive optics. So the wavefront is how all the um, waves in your optical signal line up. And so if if they all line up perfectly, they all interfere constructively and so you end up with a nice image. And if they don't all line up, they end up cancelling each other out, sort of like if you have a wave, a lot of waves coming into a beach. And if you have different waves overlapping, if you have the crests overlap, they get bigger. If you have a crest in a trough, they kind of cancel out. Mm. Yeah, so you want them all to add up uh, constructively. Right, so the adaptive optics makes them all line up. That's right. right? Yep. And that allows you to get a sharper image. Yeah. How did we develop adaptive optics? So it was sort of developed uh, to begin with by the the military in the US uh, in a classified nature in, I think, the the 70s. And then through the 80s, the astronomers started to think about it as well, and they started to develop it. And then the military came out and also started to add to that understanding. And so it really started in the public sense from the astronomy perspective, but it's now applied to a whole bunch of different areas from anything from ophthalmology, uh, microscopy, um, astronomy, communications, there's there's a whole range of areas where it's applied. It's anything to do with uh, where you have some sort of turbulent media. It doesn't have to be air. It could be a liquid, mm. like in your eye or in your skin or in a, a, a petri dish or something that you need to correct. So the military had developed this technology and then the astronomy community developed it independently yeah. just a bit later. 
And then what happened, some of the military people noticed that astronomers were doing this and said, oh, actually, by the way, here's some information. Yeah, once it became evident that the astronomy community caught up, they just declassified uh, a lot of the pieces of of military information about it because there was no point keeping it secret anymore. Do you ever feel as though the work you do has already been done by DARPA? Does that bother you? It depends on which area, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of research that has probably already been done, particularly with with high-power lasers. Mm. Um, It would be helpful to have any lessons learned out of that uh, so that we don't have to make the same pitfalls. But I do understand from a defence point of view that some of these things do need to be kept classified. One area that's kind of at the very boundaries of understanding that we've had discussions about before would be doing optical communications, but using quantum key distribution in order to encrypt the messages. Yeah, so quantum key distribution is a method of making an encryption key where you can't decrypt that key. Mm -hmm. And so even if you have a passcode in your phone, well, someone can try and guess it by guessing different uh, passcodes. Um, you could plug a computer into your phone and it could guess it however many thousand times per second and unlock your phone in minutes or hours. So the same kind of encryption is used for anything from bank transactions to sending email to, you know, your Wi-Fi password, everything that's sent over the internet. These days, most things usually have encryption. Mm. Not everything, but most things. Um, and But it all relies on an encryption key. You have to have some way of, of locking it with encryption, then unlocking it at the other end. Mm-hmm. And so quantum key distribution is a method of of making these keys with quantum information. And what you do is you are able to distribute the keys in a way that um, the encryption key can't be deciphered. Okay, maybe you could use brute force to do it, but the, the goal is to have the keys only be used once for a short period. So even if someone is able to decipher a small bit of information, they don't get what you're continuing to talk about mm. because you can change your key fast enough. And this is done through photon entanglement. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, so there's a number of ways you can do it. Okay. So you can, I guess it all comes back to how you make random numbers. So if you make a random number in a computer, it's not really random. It has to be seeded from something. Mm. So maybe you use the, the, the temperature of your CPU. Maybe you use the position of a fan that's spinning these are sort of random things but they're not actually that random Um, whereas you can have a quantum random number generator which is a truly random number generator Uh, and this is what you use to to generate the key and then there's this particular protocol uh, where you can actually send that key and not have it be uh, intercepted or decodable. To what extent is this theoretical versus actually practically possible or even being done? You can buy equipment to do it over fibres. So okay. that's, that's available. A company here in, in Canberra has that, Quintessence Labs. There's even a small uh, demonstration network um, through the Parliamentary Triangle in Canberra, which has this technology enabled. It's It works over a relatively short distance. A, a problem is you can't actually amplify a quantum signal. And so it can only travel sort of tens to maybe a hundred-ish kilometers. Mm. Normal optical signals uh, behave exactly the same way, but you can just amplify them. 
as soon as you try and amplify a quantum signal, that actually means you've made a measurement on it and you lose the quantumness of that uh, bit of data. So you can't actually amplify it. And so what we're looking at doing is, instead of doing it over fiber, is to do it over free space. Where yes, there's still a loss, but it's not as large a loss as through fiber, and you can do it from space to ground. So you can actually uh, connect multiple points on the ground thousands of kilometers away with a satellite. And this allows you to uh, make your encryption keys and transmit your data very securely. Using optics? Yeah. So some sort of flashing light? Effectively, it's a light that the same way that it works in an optical fiber communication system. You have a, a light that flashes on and off at a particular frequency. It might be billions of times per second. And that is how you encode and transmit the data. You just took me around to have a look at some of the adaptive optic setups and various lenses. So it was fascinating to me to see that it's still a physical process. You're still putting lenses in place and using screwdrivers and equipment to build a system that puts light through it in order to bounce it in different ways or split um, split wavelengths and then measure different things. Is that something that appeals to you, the kind of practical, physical nature of the work? Absolutely. So work in the lab is, is great and mm. it's, it's good to be able to, to have some hands-on time. There's a lot of background, obviously, you always need software to tie everything together. I'm fortunate enough that we have software engineers here who can take care of that and do it properly. And uh, the same with, with a lot of the uh, mechanical engineering as well. We can have people who can look at the thermal issues and see how are things going to behave at different temperatures and is it going to survive you know, to 77 Kelvin and, and still work properly if we need it to. But for me, definitely, um, I mean, there's a, there's a toolbox right here in my office. I find all the time that I need to do something and I'm usually at my desk. So I got sick of running down to the lab and getting a tool and I just decided to build a toolkit in my office. Even mm. though most of the precision things get done in the lab, every now and then you just need a screwdriver or a pair of pliers to get something done. Would you call yourself a bit of a MacGyver? Do you like to fix things and tinker with things? Yeah, definitely. I have quite a workshop and set up at home, so I do a lot of bits and pieces there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, example, I had uh, I have a relatively new house and my kitchen tap started leaking inside the cupboard. And I thought, well, I should probably take it back because it'll be under warranty, but then I'll be without a tap for however long. So I just pulled the entire tap apart piece mm. by piece and ended up with however many 30 pieces of tap on my living room floor and worked out what was wrong. It was just something wasn't quite tight enough and put it back together and it's working just fine. So I'm not afraid of pulling things apart. I've built enough bits and pieces of mechanical things, mm. particularly when we design them from scratch, where we have a lot of uh, different requirements going into there. I'm not really afraid of taking things apart. As long as you can document how it goes back together, <laughs> I should be able to get it back together. How are you at building IKEA furniture? Excellent. Very quick. <laughs> Sitting in front of me is the most fantastically interesting chocolate I have ever eaten. And you informed me that you made it yourself. How did you get into making chocolate? For a birthday, my mum gave me an ice cream making course class here in Canberra. And the guy who, who runs it, you, get, you, you go in there and uh, he takes you through all the steps of what is important about making ice cream, why things matter you know, what sort of fat content you need to do and sort of gives you a formula for how to work out what sort of ratios of ingredients you need to use for different kinds of ice cream. 
why you need to add sugar, why it's important to know the sugar content of your fruit, what sort of fat content you need in your cream, all that sort of thing. And one of the things that he had there was he had made homemade chocolate from, from cocoa beans. And just tasting it was absolutely incredible and amazing. And I'd never tasted chocolate like it. And so I asked him about it afterwards. He said, okay, yep, this is the equipment that you need. This is sort of the website that he uses. And he does this and that and told me a bit about it. So I went off and did a bit of research and started reading about it, had a look at the equipment and saved up a bit and got the probably the smallest machine that I could because that was the most affordable. It still means I make batches of about four kilos of chocolate is sort of the, the, the minimum that sort of makes sense. And uh, yeah, I was able to start making chocolate. Um, been doing that for a bit over a year now. And it's really, really shocking how quickly you go through four kilos of chocolate. And then you also showed me that you do metalwork. Yeah, so I do a lot of uh, metalwork at home. So I weld up a lot of things. I make tables, I make benches, I make boxes for various things on the farm. I yeah, do a lot of things uh, out of metal and uh, I do jewellery as well. So silversmithing, so I've made a lot of bits and pieces there. It's quite uh, fun and interesting. I sort of find it's a good creative outlet, particularly if things aren't going well in the lab. You can go home and just kind of think, what should I make today and make something interesting or you get inspired or an idea from something you see and you can make something that's quite interesting and nice. I have to say, I'm very impressed by the things you showed me. They're not just interesting and nice. They're very good quality and just absolutely beautiful. How do you decide what you're going to make? You showed me one that you said was your PhD thesis in the form of a ring. So are you inspired by your scientific exploits in everything you make or are there other things that inspire them? Uh, Not in everything, but Mm. certainly uh, in a number of things. And so as I do a lot of optics, so I've done, you know, things with opals and with amber and things, and you can sort of play with the light there. It's sort of a question of how much time you have to put into it and what the motivation is. So I did a couple of years of classes of of silversmithing, just sort of one night a week for a couple of weeks in a row. Every week you go there, so you want to make use of the time. So you have to be creative and make something. So I have, even if you don't make it, I have an entire notebook full of sketches of ideas Mm. and inspired things that... Uh, I could potentially make or maybe could do something this way or um, yeah, try out a new technique or something. So the, the way you can tell someone who makes jewellery is the first thing they do when they, they see a, a nice piece is they pick it up and they turn it over because they want to see how it's made. Mm. They, they've already seen that it looks nice. They want to see where it's, where's the detail, how did you put that together. And that can be uh, quite tricky sometimes to actually work out what's the order of operations to get this in place. A bit like adaptive optics. It is, yeah. But in a practical sense. There's a lot of joy in in making something yourself from scratch. Yeah. And I think your job allows you to do that in a way that's that's a real privilege. Yeah, it is, absolutely. Especially when, you know, we have a mechanical workshop here. So you get to see the raw billets of aluminium come in Mm. and a really shiny piece of precision engineering come out and you then fill it with optics and... uh, align it and ship it off and go and install it and it's uh it's quite a good feeling to have some uh, really high quality piece of engineering yep. put to use on a big telescope do you find it beautiful so i think we we do tend to go for function over design mm. however i think there is beauty in that so the a lot of times you will have requirements that you have to meet where 
you know, maybe you have a certain size that you have to uh, fit within, mm. but there is a certain beauty in having the sharp edges and having the curves from the machining tools still in place so that when you mill out a pocket in a piece of aluminium, you don't need to have square edges. They're sort of rounded. So I think there definitely is beauty in in the way the things that we build are manufactured. Mm. And while we don't purposefully go for that, I think it, it does end up there in the end. What does it feel like to finish a piece of equipment? It's definitely satisfying. It is usually very relieving because uh, getting to the end of any project is a big rush. And so usually you take a few days off after you've finished. Final question for you. And I, I'm not sure, but I, I'm interested to know, where do you think that ethics fits into what you do? So I guess it depends on the area. So if you're talking about pieces of space debris and measuring where they are, um, there's no way to really hide something in space. Mm. And so I don't know that there's uh, anything that you can do um, to stop people looking at what you've put in space or to tell people, no, you can't look at what I've put in space. Um, if it's in plain view, the photons are reaching you, you should be able to use it. Kind of like what, the internet. Sure. For what purpose are you using it for? Okay, maybe there's some ethics discussions there. Mm. Um, if you're talking about space law and if you're going to move something in orbit with a laser on the ground and if that then hits something in the future, whose responsibility is it? That's a good question. Mm. Um, yeah, I think there, there are definitely areas that ethics needs to come into this. Um, yeah, I'm tempted to say it's. Uh, I'm happy to build the instrument and leave that up to people who get paid more than me. Fair enough. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And if people want to look you up, do you have any social media or are you off the grid? Um, I'm definitely off the grid. I'm far too old for that. Okay. And uh, you can look up my researcher page at the ANU. Okay, Francis Bennett. Yep. Check out the ANU research page if you're interested in the work that's being done. And otherwise, go away and um, go away and Google some of this stuff because it's absolutely fascinating, and you can get very deep into it and uh, really make your brain stretch. Or at least I find I can, and that's very satisfying for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Space Junk. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram as at Annie Hanma. If you would like to support the continued production of this podcast, head to www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod and you can sign up to a monthly contribution of your choice. For $1 a month, you get a warm, fuzzy feeling delivered to your inbox once a month. For $5, you can ask a question and I'll answer it on the pod. And for $10, you can suggest topics or guests for future episodes. There are also some higher tiers, or orbits as I prefer to call them, which get you access to newsletters and videos. It's all around a good time. Thanks for listening.